Welcome to Mostly Books Meets, the weekly podcast for the incurably bookish. We will be talking to authors and creatives from across the world of publishing and discussing the books they have loved. Looking for a recommendation? Then look no further. Head to your favourite cosy spot and let us pick out your next favourite book. On the podcast this week, we welcome author Kevin Jared Hossein. His latest book, Hungry Ghosts, was published to great acclaim on the 16th of February. Set in rural 1940s Trinidad, Hungry Ghosts follows two households, the wealthy Changors and the impoverished Sharoops. It is a novel about family, caste, religion and violence. The late Hilary Mantel said of Hungry Ghosts that energy and inventiveness distinguish every page. And Claire Alfrey, in her review for The Times, said that this Trinidadian Gothic deserves to be a Booker Prize contender. Kevin, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you for having me. Our absolute pleasure. Now, I know um, this isn't your first book and you've had stories published in um, various different publications, but it's very interesting sort of approaching this book when um, we first looked to have this book on our podcast. You know, there's a lot of great uh, quotes for the cover from, you know, different authors. For you as an established author, approaching the publication of any book, is there mixed feelings? Is there nerves? Or does it sort of now seem kind of second nature? What's it like from your side of things? There's many, many feelings. Um, so I've, I've published mainly in, in, in my region, the Caribbean mm. region, not really outside of the Caribbean region. So uh, we have a, a, a small but dedicated system and, and families, mm. you know. So seeing it released widely at first and still is a bit pretty frightening because you, you wonder how the wider world would take, you know, the type of story, a uh, story and literature. Even though mm. I've I've had success in the Commonwealth Short Story Prize and so on, mm, yeah, there's a bit of second nature that comes to it that when you do publish a book, in a in a sense, it doesn't belong to you anymore because you can't really go back and change anything. First of all, you you can't hear the, the feedback, criticisms, but you can't really do anything. So, and then you hear people's takes on it, and you know you you kind of take that in. And you you realize that. Um, people form new and, and original mm. ideas based based on their work. So there's always the idea that you put the story out there and, I mean, there's a authorial sense to it, but there's also, as I said, it doesn't truly belong to you anymore. Mm. Does that ever get frustrating? I don't know. So, you know, I can imagine, you know, you've spent obviously a long time, you know, writing this novel. Um, do you ever sort of see one of the, yes, because readers can you know, take a novel down so many different roads. Do you ever sort of feel frustrated with that or have you sort of resigned yourself to that aspect of storytelling? I, I have a habit of avoiding reviews when it comes okay, up. Okay, yes, now, okay, yeah. Usually, like, what happens is my agent kind of sums up, I guess, the good ones and sends them. And there's cases where the book may have been read hastily or um, mm. some parts may have been read insensitively, you know, so there's, there's, there's those things yes. as well. But, um, yeah, so in the sense of it, as I said, there's, there's an initial pang of fright associated mm. with it, mm. but eventually you, you come to realize it is an, an entity of its own. I, I am really, really happy that, um, Hungry Ghost, this particular book is being released widely because it is specifically a very Trinidadian book, but it has mm. universal themes that I think many people can relate to. Yes, absolutely. And we'll talk um, a bit more about Hungry Ghosts um, later on. But uh, one of the things we like to do, we're a small bookshop in a small town in uh, Oxfordshire, and we're sort of passionate about bookselling. So one thing we like to do is sort of ask our guests to uh, become, you know, booksellers kind of for the day. And um, the first book we'd sort of like you to recommend or to talk about is a book from childhood or a children's book that you um you connected to either when you were younger or it can even be the one that you've read more recently. If I sort of approached you and said, oh, could you recommend me um, a book linked to childhood? What what would you be putting off the shelf? Right. So funny little story is that when I was young, my library was, was very limited. Mm. So I did have a lot of nonfiction involving plants, animals, cultures that, you know, they, they, they were childcraft picture books, but you know, they were substantial still. 
And I read those over and over. But when it came to, to fiction, one of my first memories is that there used to be this, this floating library, this boat that used to dock in Trinidad's capital, Port of Spain. And they would sell books for cheap and they would go from island to island and sometimes to Venezuela. Mm. And my dad bought uh, a workbook that was actually excerpts of novels. Um, this, oh. this would have been like White Fang um, from Jack London, um, mm. The Hobbit by Tolkien. And, and many others. But when, when I was little, I thought those were short stories. Because you <laughs> have like 10 questions, you know. But one of the, the ones that struck me the most was um, the, the chapter that they had on The Hobbit, which was Riddles in the Dark. Uh, mm. the, that was the one where, you know, you'd have Smeagol and, and Bilbo and all the, the riddles. And I thought that was a short story for the longest time. You know, I, then I realized it was a book. So then we got the book and... I wasn't really interested in like some of the other books that might have been given to yeah, me as a youth. Like uh, I wasn't really interested in Robin Hood and Oliver Twist, mm. you know, but The Hobbit it is something was something truly fantastical and not overcomplicated. <laughs> you know, you can you mm. can read it for leisure. Uh, so uh, I I would say that's a good one <laughs> to start off with with my childhood. That's why it sounds quite a good, you know, we get uh, in the shop regularly sort of abridged versions of kind of, you know, some of the classics for kind of younger readers. But the the sort of book of kind of samples of different stories sounds quite a, a nice, you know, way of, um, you know, being introduced. Because, of course, you know, uh, particularly when you're a young reader, you know, it can be quite daunting picking up, you know, a full story because, you know, yeah. if, you, if you start it and you don't like it. I certainly, when I was younger, always felt that I had to finish a book. And these days I'm I'm not so strict with myself. But, you know, that kind of sampling is a nice way of sort of being introduced to it and not feeling the pressure of having to at least start with a with a whole book. They felt like demos for books. Like, yes. You know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Would you describe yourself as, you know, some children can be sort of voracious readers, whereas myself actually growing up, I wasn't much of a, a reader as a kid. I, I struggled with reading. Were you a really big reader or just sort of, you know, give or take? Up until I was about 13 or 14 years old, I, I really wasn't uh, a big reader mm. in, in the traditional sense. But I, mm. what I did like was video games that involved a lot of reading. So a lot of um, role-playing games mm. where the storyline might be 34, 40 hours long and filled with dialogue and descriptions. I was really, really hooked on those. And how I actually started writing was, was doing fan fiction, probably when I was like 13 years old. As I said, like, I was really struck by my fantasy settings as well, you know, The Hobbit would have resonated mm. so much with me. So I discovered the catcher in Rye by accident. I didn't know what it was. I heard the name. Mm. I saw it in a library and I said, uh, you know, I'd give it a try. And I read this out and I think most boys probably read it when they're 14 years old, if they do encounter it. And I didn't know what it was about. And you couldn't really tell anything by the title, but there was something about it that when I, I was reading it, it really felt like being spoken to. And my reading was so limited, I didn't realize that books could have been like that, I, you know, because it's so accustomed to um, the more flowery type of more complex literature. And this one was just like, you know, a guy, a teenager speaking about uh, spending three days in, in New York or whatever and just speaking about what's on his mind. And, you know, I saw those books that, that were similar to that. And then I discovered the horror genre, which is Stephen King, and I read a lot of that at the time. So that, that's kind of like how my reading started. Mm. But of course, you know, as you pointed out with games, there's a, you know, there's a great storytelling tradition there. You know, how anyone comes by stories, you know, it doesn't have to be books. It can be television, it can be film or games. I've certainly spoken to a couple of authors on this podcast who have said, oh, actually, when I was younger, you know, I loved stories, but how I got those stories weren't necessarily through books. And I think it's that you know, anything that's kind of good for the imagination when you're young, it's all good. You know, it's it's about finding what's right for you. And, um, 
you know, games in terms of world building are, you know, these days a step ahead of the rest. And that's, you know, no offense to writers out there, but, you know, they are, you know, they're really, they're adding to that sort of great storytelling tradition. So the games you went for then were these kind of quite sort of story heavy games as yeah. opposed to, yeah. As opposed to like shoot em ups or something like that. That's yes. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, one yeah. That were like, yeah, really heavy on story. Mm. It's interesting that you say, I must confess, I've never read Catcher in the Rye. And um, you mentioned the sort of age of kind of 13, 14, because I have heard people say that it's sort of, you know, those teenage years is kind of the time to read it. And some people have said that they've gone back to it later on and they sort of haven't connected to it in the same way. I think that first connection you have with a book that you feel speaks to you in some way is, is always a very a very sort of um, potent one and it's a, it's a potent memory. And um, do you remember when the sort of the last time was that you connected with a book in a, in a similar way in kind of more, more recent reading? You know, c- coming back to the, the catch on your eye, I did read it again, maybe in my twenties and, you know, there was nostalgia to it. I can remember some parts were, you know, word for word. But sometimes it just felt really cringy and it, it wasn't really like that, 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 <laughs> that it aged badly or anything like that. I think I just aged. Uh, at first you see um, the protagonist Holden Caulfield as like a, a, a heroic character. And then I think as you get older, when your own personality changes and you go through your own life changes, you start to, you begin to question why did you think of him as heroic because he's he's really really deeply flawed mm. he wants to be heroic he wants to be like the hero of a story the main character of a story and i i actually think that's a beautiful thing when you revisit a story because even though like i don't fully connect with it right now i would still recommend it to you know to let's say a, a 14 year old i might recommend it to someone in their 20s or maybe just to check it out but i think that it works kind of like when you see a movie when you know you're a child and then you look at it i can't believe that i thought this movie was good because you know your your taste change you develop it gets refined and you simply have become more exposed to not just other types of media but just um, situations in your life so when you see characters from these books not to say that it is not timeless but it is they are malleable they do change with your life there are some that they do remain static, like, um, as I said, maybe like the Hobbit may remain static true, because that story is so, you know, it's, it's, it's grounded within an imaginary world. But yeah, so I, I think it's still not a bad thing if you cannot fully reconnect with, with, with a character as you get older. Mm, that's a, a really nice point. I think when a character is, is well drawn, when they sort of have life kind of breathed into them is yes you can go back to them and you know kind of re-establish a different relationship to them which really says something about you know the, the the character that from a different angle you can you know you can see something or it's even like reading a rereading a book in actually a short space of time sometimes you can come across things that somehow before you you didn't quite catch and um you know with hungry ghosts there's obviously you know a sort of a cast of characters with that for you as a writer when you're sort of approaching i've met some writers that kind of with characterization they approach it by sort of they kind of create the characters in their head and then they sort of write the book or they kind of let the process of writing sort of flesh out the characters do you have a particular way of approaching that or do you just write and then see what what comes out usually the books if i if i were to start a story it could start either way a lot of my stories are are pulled from real incidents so it's not recorded like one-to-one or anything like that. Like there's still mm. the, 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 the creative aspect of it. So for example, like, um, my short story passage that I won the Commonwealth short story prize for that was based on an incident that I read about when I was 16 and I really wanted to write a story about that, but I just couldn't find the lens to work it through and a decade and change later, I met a man who, who worked in a forest. He was like a forestry officer. And I was so taken by how this man spoke and his views that I said, ah, this, this is the guy that who's, who's going to narrate the okay. story okay. Okay. that I wanted to write this whole time. With Hungry Ghosts, it actually started with one character, uh, the character of Mali Chango and 
everyone else branched out from her. So even though she is not particularly the main character in the book, but she does embody many of the aspects that I believe in the term hungry ghost, you know, mm. so something that is forever wanting, but never fully satisfied stands for. So it does differ. So for, for hungry ghost, you know, that was the kind of, um, the way into the story, as it were, you know, like with the um, the passage, you know, you found the kind of moment where you were like, ah, oh, this is the, as you said, the lens, yeah. the kind of the way, yes. Um, that must be, I don't know, quite an exciting moment, I imagine, when you sort yeah. of, you think, ah, oh, this is, yeah, this is, um, this is it. Yeah, then I wrote that in one night. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. That's a very, yeah, a very, um, are you, um, yeah, you get that <laughs> is that uh, uh, in writing, do you tend to sort of, um, I know, you know, some authors I've spoken to, it's kind of relatively short, intensive bursts, or it's, um, a kind of a slightly more drawn out process. Would you say you fall into either camp or again, somewhere in between? It is usually what, what happens is that I, for Hungry Ghost in particular, I did a lot of research. So I did a lot of interviews, um, went through archived information, and that took a, a pretty long time. In fact, I got much, much more than I would have used in the book. And then I wanted to put everything in the book, which was wrong, because then the book would have been extremely bloated, which it was for a time until it got edited. Okay. And because you, you also feel like you have to honor everybody you interviewed. You know, you have to put it there, uh, on their time at least. But there's this long journal process in a way. But there's parts of the book, like if I was to write a skeleton, um, like a skeletal plot of it, there's parts that I would say are like uh, mini climaxes throughout the book. And these are parts that not necessarily would be plot climaxes, but they would be high points in my mind. Like, hey, this is a really exciting part for me to write. So there's a part where some young boys, some teenage boys take some mushrooms in the novel and they begin to hallucinate. And I never actually written anything like that before, but that, was, that to me was like a, a high point, no pun intended. <laughs> so to me, like that would, would be written in a very short burst, sporadic, and, and be, that to me, I'd be like really, really excited to hit those points there. So. I work up in anticipation towards those points, be like, oh, tomorrow I'm going to, tomorrow is that scene, I'm going to write that yeah. scene. I get really excited, yeah. That sounds almost, I don't know, like a hiking or something where, yeah. you know, there's kind of, you know, people might go, I really love this bit of a hike, but obviously I have to get to that point first. Yeah. But that's your kind of drive to get there because I imagine, you know, there's points where you're getting from sort of A to B and that the middle section is kind of a bit, a bit knotty and a bit sort of frustrating and maybe hard to hard to work through. Yeah, and then later on, you, you still have to work through it and then mm. later on, you could smooth it out, edit it, and some parts may be a bit of a slog. As in kind of like a hike, as you said, like, okay, I want to get to this point so I can see this view. Oh, but I have to go through this muddy terrain first. Except, you know, with, with um, writing, you can always go and smooth it out and, mm. you know, make the scenery a bit nicer and integrate those aspects a bit more but the point is that you have to make it to the point you have to at least finish what you're going to do yes which takes yeah quite a bit of discipline i imagine to get to that point yeah we've talked about um you know uh, what you read and how you sort of enjoyed stories when you were younger now the kevin of today are you much of a reader now do you have time for much reading or is that time sort of mostly taken up by your own sort of creative process how would you describe yourself now in terms of books Okay, that's that's an interesting question. So usually, like, if I'm working on a book, this one in particular, I try to keep it a few months. Mm. At least with the, the writing process, the first draft process. The reason being is, um, and I'm sure other writers run into this issue as well, you tend to unconsciously integrate the, the good things about books that you're reading into your book. Oh, my book could have this too. And even though you, you try oh, okay. <laughs> to, to make this weird patchwork of mm. this, that, uh, it just becomes something derivative in a way. So I like to read poetry instead of, if I'm in the process of writing, instead of um, fiction, I, oh, I like to read nonfiction. So fiction for me is like in my, probably if I'm in a research phase or a non, non-writing phase, 
or, or even just an editing phase where I already have, you know, draft done. Obviously, there's authors and books that may have um, informed or influenced my style. Hmm, of course. But um, I try to avoid it because I know I do have a bad habit of trying to integrate certain plot points into my own, you know, to make it fit. So, but it does not you know, end up fitting in the end. Of course, yeah. I imagine anybody who's a reader, you know, or a writer, there's kind of a sponge element to that. You know, when you enjoy a story, it kind of all gets, you know, soaked in. I imagine, you know, when you're trying to write your own, that can kind of get in the way of the process. And you, you mentioned um, nonfiction as well, because am I right in saying for a long time, or maybe you still are, apologies if I've got this wrong, but you're a teacher as well as a uh, as a writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I've, I've been more um, consumer teetering nowadays because of the time. Um, of course, yeah. So, but I I do still have that aspect to me. Yeah. But while while I was writing the book and throughout editing, yeah, I was still teaching full time. And, and did that um because it was um biology is that correct was it yes biology biology yes so that because you mentioned as well when you were younger you had those kind of like nonfiction books so that love of nonfiction then remained was that kind of one of the spearheads that led you towards sort of teaching biology as well it was it, in a sense I did enhance. Um, my teaching of it, because I was, as I said, like when I first started reading, I had these childcraft books. Mm. And one of my favorite ones was one called The Green Kingdom. And mm. it was about just plants, you know, which could be seen as the most boring thing sometimes. But there was a way in which when they wrote it, and I didn't think about this until much later, but there's, there's, there's a style in which they wrote it and they used quite simple but beautiful language actually to describe some of these plants and they related it to folklore of, of different countries as well. And they did have historical context. And even as a child, you not you you just cannot absorb it. Mm. And as I got older, I noticed that let's say Charles Darwin, for example, when he wrote uh, The Voyage of the Beagle, like his trip to the Galapagos Islands, is written in very beautiful language, very descriptive. And this is because you want people to get excited and, and you want people to get, you want to touch on, upon this imagination that they have and not have just like cool sterile facts. You want to hit something emotive in them. And a lot of science writers do that. So they, in, in a way it is, it is linked like that. And something that very early in my career of teaching, I read a book called The Diving Bell and the butterfly. And there's a memoir by Jean-Dominique Bobby. He was a fashion editor and he got a stroke. And he all he could have done was um, blink his left eye. So he wrote the book with his left eye. So, he, you know, he would blink and the nurse would copy the letters one by one. At the time, I used this to teach about, like, the, um, the cerebrum, the medulla, the spinal cord, you know, things like that. And I would read parts of it for my students thinking back on, yeah, science is not just cool, hard facts. Yes, there's a factual part, but there's also the part where you have to be able to communicate these ideas quite efficiently, just like literature does. And some nonfiction books do that quite beautifully. So they do go hand in hand. So yeah, they do, they do influence each other. My, my love for, for like nonfiction books, at least the ones that integrate that sort of literary communication to it mm. absolutely yeah not non-fiction books can be uh you know just as uh beautiful than fiction books and I, I suppose science in a way is a form of storytelling i might be getting this completely wrong as not a scientist myself and of course you know hungry ghost is very influenced and centered on the kind of the, the natural world so that feels you know fair to say that that aspect of you obviously fed into the to the writing of hungry ghosts as well yes yes it did because a lot of what I studied was ecology, so you'll find a lot mm. of that in the book. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, in terms of uh, you now as a reader, if again we're sort of in this imaginary bookshop where I'm, I'm getting you to you know talk about the books that you've loved, in terms of recent reads, things that you've read, whether fiction or non-fiction, uh, what books um, stand out for you? Sure, there's one called Chernobyl Prey, Voices from Chernobyl. And it's by, if I'm pronouncing this correctly, Svetlana Alexievich, right? Alexievich. And it really is just a, a collection of monologues based, you know, around people who would have 
been on the, the, the site or the periphery of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. And these turn out to be surprisingly poignant because there's very little editorial input from her. She, she knew how, how, however, the order in which to put them in in order to maximize the impact. So I read this before I saw, you know, there's, there's a HBO Chernobyl series. I read that and I, I, I thought it was mind-blowing. I thought it's, it's something that maybe everybody could read, but with respect to probably any natural or man-made disaster, because there's always this very, very human collective behind it. Another recent one I read was um, The Sound of the Mountain by Yasunari Kawabata, Japanese author. It's a book that came out many, many years ago. And I, I bought it as th this guy was just, he was moving and he was selling off his books. And I was just like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll buy that box of books. I, you know, whatever is in it. And I saw this and, and then I, you know, we were going on a, a, a bit of a road trip and I just read it in the car and it uses, I guess what people would call an economy of words. And there's always something that interests me about some Japanese loan words, where they have words to describe emotions that we don't really have a, a, a word for. You know, we wouldn't mean we might have like a sentence or so on, but they have like these very complex emotions, very nuanced emotions that we would have to describe in like a paragraph and they might have a single word for it. So like in this novel here, um, there's an old man who's in his sixties and he believes that, you know, he's approaching that. And he discovers that his son is having a fear with um, his, you know, his daughter-in-law. And as a result, he, the old man gets very close to his daughter, un uncomfortably close, where he develops, um, you know, he develops feelings for her in, in a very, I, I wouldn't even say in, in like a, a gross way or anything like that. It, it is actually quite wholesome how he... Mm he tries to, to comfort her and tries to get his son to, you know, to, to stop doing this to his, mm. to, to his wife. Uh, but it's, it's a very, very complex emotion that could have gone very, very wrong and or that you would use a multitude of words to describe such a thing. But the sound of the mountain does it using nature and using domestic actions and, and lifestyle to describe this. I think it is also worth the read to, to go through mm. that. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And um, it's always fascinating the differences between um, different languages, because I, I think, and uh, again, apologies if, if I'm wrong, but um, I remember a couple of years ago, there was um, a, a lot of different books that came out that were to do with sort of mindfulness but kind of different countries sort of approach to mindfulness and I think one came out that was about um sort of walking in nature but it's from a Japanese concept which I think the translation for the nearest we can get in English is tree washing or kind of um tree bathing I think is the is I think the word I heard of that yeah I, yes. I can't remember the actual Japanese word, but I remember. No, the... no, 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 no. Typically, yeah. I, I I can't remember the actual word, but yes. And, you know, I thought that was um, once you know the concept, uh, yeah. a word for it makes perfect, you know, perfect sense. And it, it, it's when it speaks to an element that, you know, I think we all have that that kind of desire sometimes just to kind of get out in the natural world and enjoy it for no particular purpose you know not uh not even just to sit and have a picnic or something but just to kind of walk through it and uh it's a lovely moment when you kind of come across that another language has actually you know found a, a vocabulary for that that maybe you know english is um it is lacking yeah and if we if i mean the, the term tree bearing or washing may sound awkward but if we if we think of it as like um, like cleansing or, or like washing away mm. emotions or something. Mm. It makes sense, but you know, in the, in the English sense of it, it does sound awkward. But I'm sure in the Japanese context, it's, it's more poignant. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. That's the thing. The translation never can nev never quite, you know, nail it with it so much as um, you know, lost there. And one thing actually for authors, do you find that are there moments where kind of 
the concept of something is very sort of clear in your mind or even a scene but then actually the process of kind of translating that to on the page that there's kind of that gap between the you know what exists in here because of course in, in our minds something can be in you know four dimensions as it were or, or uh, three dimensions but that process of transferring it over to the page do you find there's is that almost kind of like a a translation from one sort of state to another yeah sometimes that you especially like when i write i okay so i i i was reading about i read this book our souls at night and it's really most of it is really just dialogue between an older man and a woman these two american neighbors and both their spouses have passed away and the um the woman suggested the man that he could come over to sleep not to have intercourse or anything like that, but simply that they would sleep together in a bed and it might make the, the nights pass easier, you know, it wouldn't get so lonely. Mm. Uh, that actually develops into a kind of a complex thing around how there's rumors about them, you know, things that, but they end up learning about each other. But I was reading about the, the oh, and how the book is written is really just dialogue. Like uh, most of it is dialogue because a lot of it is talking. And the, the author, Kent Haruf, when I was reading about his style in writing, he used to go to a tool shed, so it's similar to what you have to get, a setup you have there. <laughs> this is exactly probably why this one came to mind. And yeah. <laughs> he would, he would um, go in total darkness and he would have his laptop actually. You know, his laptop also produces light. So he would have on this, um, this cap and you pull the cap over his eyes and he would type, 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 type. And it doesn't matter if it had typos or if it was edited properly, but he just typed the dialogue as it appeared in his mind. And you know, sometimes when you have things in your mind and they get tra translated to the page like that, it might not be, you know, 100%. But as you know, that's where editing comes in. For me, I do something similar where I write in darkness. I don't like cover my eyes or anything like that, but um, I try to kind of erase everything around me, but I, I like, to have music playing and I would sometimes think, oh, maybe this music fits this person's frame of mind at the time. And, you know, of course, when you have music, wild images may come into your head and uh, not all of it may be translated as the, the type of imagery or, you know, through the words that you have there, then that's fine. And sometimes you might end up, if you really were to translate everything in your mind to the page, you end up with this kind of maximalist, um, overstated thing. So sometimes it's for the best it is not a hundred percent translation from mind to peace. Sometimes mm. okay to yes. have a gap. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, that's a, so writing in darkness, but not, not to the extremes of kind of, you yeah, know, full, uh, yeah, full, uh, that's a very interesting method. I like the, I like the, the sound of that. It's always interesting hearing, you know, how different people, uh, approach this. And in terms of for you, if you were to recommend a book that um, we used to phrase this as a book that changed your life, which I think is a very strong claim to give a book and not everybody was able to. I like to more sort of phrase it in terms of a favourite book or a book that really stands out for you, or it can be books as well. But what would you be putting off the shelf in that scenario? I, I would suggest that it might not be for everyone, um, but everyone should give the road by Cormac McCarthy. A try. At surface level, it is an entertaining but bleak read. It was very bleak. I was right, it's very bleak. If you were to read it a second time, you may notice linguistic and stylistic things that he did with the text. If you're familiar with Komak Makati and he doesn't really like punctuation. So he doesn't like um, apostrophes and uh, dialogue, quotation marks, or anything like that. And that could be frustrating, but somehow with the road it fits because it's set during a, a, it's set in a wasteland, and the way in which he puts the text, the sentences, they're very brief, stark sentences, and sometimes almost devoid of punctuation. It does give off that feeling that this this is a world that's blown apart and things are missing. There's of course much more to it than that. Uh, it's, it's something that a book I do revisit from time to time to see how exactly he did accomplish this because it, it's another situation where he used 
very spare language at times, but he also used very specific words to describe things, words that uh, you, may, you may not see, or uh, phrases you may not see in anywhere else. Mm. And it did influence some of my writing, because some, some of mine is ancient language and scientific language and things like that. But um, it, is a, it is a book that I think is, is worth visiting at least once. It's interesting, yes, what you say about uh, MacArthur's language. Yes, I've read, I, I've always meant to read The Road. I read Blood Meridian and that was also a kind of very, yeah, uh, very. you know, it, it's it's not, you know, it's not a jolly book, I would say. But, yeah. it, it, you know, there's that very distinct use of language. And um, uh, with Hungry Ghosts as well, you know, language seems to be, I mean, it is obviously with all books, but kind of a very, uh, a very sort of, con you know, considered part of it. It has a, a very beautiful language to it and in your introduction certainly to the proof copy i have for those who are out there listening i think this potentially might differ to the to the imprint copy but there was talk about the um almost the apprehension of talking or writing about home and the kind of the language involved with that uh, and then it's interesting that you mention uh mccarthy with sort of using you know, phrases that might not be, you know, familiar to everyone. And I was really interested in that, that there seemed to be a, a want to just not kind of bog yourself down in explaining that, but going actually, no, you know, here it is. Is that, you know, were, were you sort of inspired by that or did that come from a, a different direction? It did, it did come from that in a way because um, in Trinidad, we, everyone speaks in a dialect called Trinidadian Creole English. Mm. And We've never been taught how to write in, in that language because as we've always been dissuaded from writing it or sp not speaking it to each other, but let's say in a formal situation, you would, you would not speak it. And of course, you know, school is more of a formal situation, so you wouldn't really learn it there. And I was reading through some of uh, McCarthy's work and, and William Faulkner's work and most of you know, their work is set in the American South. Mm. And they would write the American South dialect. And it's, it would be phonetically spelled. And, they, you know, the, the, the rules would differ. There's no, I, I assume there's no set rule to write how those in the, you know, in the Midwest or so on, you know, would speak. And I was like, well, it could be the same way here. There's no fixed rules and so nothing is really wrong. No, one author may write it differently from another, and that's fine. Because mm. it's, 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 that's how dialects are, they're flexible, and they're malleable. And then when it came to the words, I was thinking about um, A Clockwork Orange, Anthony Burgess, and I mean, he made up an entire language for that. And he, mm. you know, he, he had different words for men, women, milk, everything. And, you know, he did that and, 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 and people were fine. When I was really thinking about all of this, I was like, well, there, there's really no fear, really, to write our words, to write um, our dialect. So I, mm. I said, that let, let's just go, go ahead with it. But I do know that hesitation still does exist with, with younger writers that, that, I, that I speak with from um, not just Trinidad, but the Caribbean. I think that the more and more that they see it in print, mm. the, the more vindicated. They would, they would feel like, okay, yeah, we, yeah, it's fine to, to write in that, to write, you write an entire book in that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and do you think that comes from a, you know, uh, a desire to, you know, for the, for the stories to spread beyond the kind of the borders of Trinidad and Tobago and, you know, but that feeling of having to sort of, you know, or feeling like you might have to kind of explain that, uh, I don't know, it must be very liberating when you realise, well, actually, no, you know, it is what it is. And people will, you know, will, you know, understand it. It doesn't need sort of footnotes or things like that. That must be a, a sort of a very freeing moment when you kind of realize that. It is, especially when we're given, um, let's say, all, all the books um, by Caribbean authors like, like Sam Selvan, who did A Brighter Sun, and maybe all the editions of like A House and Rest of This Fast, um, you would find glossaries. At the end of the book, very rarely you'd find like footnotes, but there would always be a glossary as if, oh, this is that, uh, this is the other language, you know? And not that it's right, but I understand why back then it was like that. But mm. they 
even publishing has changed since then. It's become more accepting of, um, you know, different dialects, different cultures, mm. ways of life, and putting them out into, you know, putting them out into the world un- unapologetically. Mm. Absolutely. And of course, you know, language is, is uh, a far more fluid and living thing than kind of our social and political ideal, uh, you know, uh, ideas of kind of, you know, formal language or informal things like that, you know, particularly, I think, with fiction, but also, you know, with nonfiction as well, it's kind of very important to kind of break those ideas down because they're, you know, they are learned, uh, you know, as opposed to kind of, you know, inherent. And of course, okay, so those are the books that, you know, have had kind of a big effect on you. And of course, we've talked, you know, little bits about it as we've gone through, but now it's time to turn, obviously, to your book, Hungry Ghosts. And if you were in a bookshop and you were putting it off the shelf and handing it over to someone and you were going yourself to tell them about the book and not to sell it to them, let's say, but to just to kind of tell them about it, what would you, um, what would you say? Tell us about Hungry Ghosts. I would tell them to imagine the Caribbean as how it may be depicted to them, which I imagine it would be in like airport ads or postcards, it doesn't completely imagine that. And uh, mm. I guess imagine what it might have been like, uh, 80 years ago, a hundred years ago. And you know, that thing really might come to mind at the time. Even if you ask a Trinidadian that. They, you know, they might know. Mm. I had a big idea. I, I didn't know myself until I, you know, I did some research. And I would say this book is a portal into that specific time. Hungry Ghost is a portal to that darker part of the, the Caribbean. I imagine Hungry Ghost to be the end of a very dark chapter of the Caribbean and the start of a, of a new one. Because the book is very bleak. But I like to imagine there's still a small sliver of hope, you know, in, in, towards the end. But there's also the fact that I would want, I would want you to imagine that not all Caribbean people are the same, not all Trinidadians are the same. And reading this book here, you would get an idea of not just the various cultures that would have been there from the beginning and these cultures. The interesting thing about it is that none of them really came, I would say, on their own will, mm, really. Mm. They were brought in, they were never meant to be a civilization. Imagine a bunch of people together that were really never meant to be a civilization. And now they have to try to be, or at least pretend to be, so that the island could, could hold itself together. Mm. And I really aim for it to be an entertaining read, something that is emotive. But something, as I said, that would be, as I said, a lens to that part of, of the Caribbean. And yeah, hopefully that you would find some characters in there that I believe that you would love them at first. And then you would totally change your mind okay. <laughs> about them. <in> <laughs> so if you want to read a book like that, where it's really focused on character, but there's a bit of, mm. of let's say, a bit of detective noir with a crime fiction in there as well, a bit of mystery and a bit of coming of age as well, then yeah, all of that is in Hungry Ghost. It's one of those wonderful books. Obviously, you have some books that uh, I suppose, although again, I say this as someone who has not read Catcher in the Rye, but you know, seem to find kind of very hone in on one particular character and it's all through them. Whereas Hungry Ghosts, you know, there's a real sort of ensemble of characters. It, it, it's, you know, it's about many different people and, uh, you know, even some people who you might sort of meet only for a short period of time, they sort of really come, you know, come through as characters. And did you always know you wanted that kind of ensemble aspect or, or, or did that just come as part of the writing process? It came in the beginning pretty quickly because as as I was writing, I noticed that I really wanted to at first focus on just the rich and the poor. But then it kind of turned into who was allowed into civilization, who wasn't, um, who was allowed to buy a house, who wasn't, you know, things like that. But everything connected in a way that it was like a ripple effect. One character may do something that would influence a character on the other side of the spectrum, so to speak. And that was sort of the aim of doing um, 
the kind of ensemble spotlight, roving spotlight aspect to it, because there's many different cultures and lifestyles and, and, um, and issues at play here and uh, many different personalities that have been subjected to many different life-changing decisions or traumas and pasts and beings that I wanted it to show. And this occurs through mostly the 1940s, the, the present day of the novel, but there's also like a few flashbacks mm. um, at the beginning of each section that gives you the deeper aspect of the world that these characters live in. And you get to understand them a bit more and they may break, you know, end up breaking your heart a bit because you want to really root for some of them, but they just don't, they don't do the right thing. They do, you know, that again, that's a sign of a brilliantly complex character and a very, you know, real to life character because that, it, you know, that's true of people. We, we say, you know, they don't do what we think they should or, um, or, or we'd like them to do. And that's, a, you know, kind of one of the wonderful things about a very complex, not in the sense of, you know, complex to read, but a story which has kind of all these interactions with these different characters and their environment. And it, it, it's interesting what you say that when you were looking into the history, you said even history that a, a Trinidadian might not be, you know, completely familiar with. So was this quite the process of writing this and doing the research? Was it quite a learning curve for you? Or, you know, did you come across things that surprised you in that process? It, it was because the initial aim for this book, it was it was for an article, like a non-fiction article, um, just about uh, village life. And then, you know, I started getting all these stories and I became really, really intrigued and realized that this was a whole world that I, not that I didn't know, but that was maybe sanitized to me because where if you were to learn about as a history book, you may see some of these same characters but with a smile on their face in the illustration, you know, and you wouldn't really know, yes, you would have the overall timeline or so on, but you wouldn't really know the day-to-day lifestyle. And yeah, knowing this and, and putting it down, you know, in people, because these would have been my ancestors, but also solidified, um, the kind of oral storytelling traditions that we have here, where a lot of, a lot of stories are just simply not written down. They're just any memories mm. of, um, the older generation. So I, as I said, I felt a, a responsibility in a way to put all of these things in the book, which I couldn't. So, you know, it had to be edited down, but I think in the end, I think the point would have gotten across that people wanted to make when I was mm. interviewing them. Absolutely, because um, I've heard other authors say that, you know, fiction can be a wonderful way of kind of um, fleshing out or filling in the gaps in history or the things that people may not be aware of. Because, you know, you can read a, a short sentence about the barrack, the the uh, the place where um, um, the Saroops live, but obviously you know in a story you can kind of see what that would be you know reading a sentence that's you know says that is very different to kind of getting a sense of what that environment would be like you know p- people's lives played out in these places so a, se- yeah, a sentence or a footnote in a history book can't really do justice to that yeah it would and you wouldn't even find a photograph of a like a, the, a room of the you may see like a photograph of the external part but not a room yeah. that you would have gone in and you know made an illustration of that or anything. Mm. So really, you, c- you can't make an illustration based on someone's memory who may have lived in one or, or visited one. So yeah, there, there's a lot that is, that is lost, but that you can, you can paint a portrait with it using, you know, the words and descriptions. Yes, and you know, yeah, bring uh, bring that situation um, uh, to life. Uh, looking at the time, we're we're unfortunately approaching the end of our conversation. Before we go, um, would you mind, um, Kevin, reading a segment from Hungry Ghosts for us? Sure. So I'm going to read from uh, the first chapter of Hungry Ghosts, but up from the beginning is a chapter that's called A Lost Prayer, and in this chapter, there's a a very affluent childless couple named Dalton and Molly Chango. And one night, Molly, who is his very young wife, finds that her husband has vanished all of a sudden during a thunderstorm. And as she doesn't really look very hard for him, it's as if she's, she's glad he's gone or kind of relieved. So in this 
small portion of the book, we follow Molly as she awakens the next day. The morning after, Molly went downstairs to prepare breakfast. Dalton wasn't there. Usually he would be at the kitchen table with his bifocals, skimming the newspaper. He brewed his own coffee and drank until his nerves were shut, preferred imported Arabica to the locally grown Robusta. Molly maintained the house, did the washing, the folding, the sweeping, the dusting, chopping, cooking, the baking. Did it for her own sake at least. There were never any guests, soirees, coffee clutches, birthday parties at the Chango estate. The living room, kitchen, bedrooms, the wainscoted staircase only held the memories of them both. Because of this, the house always felt like some concealed shrine. The wordless stillness of the house now made the gloom of the air more apparent. Its silence holy and eerie. For most of the day, she was a ghost, roaming a haunted manor. If he wasn't in the kitchen, perhaps he was in the outhouse, a single-roomed shed that he had fashioned into some sort of strange sanctum, a nymphium that held nothing but a giant oil painting of a Chinese goddess. He made it clear, Mali was never to enter unless he was there too. As if she were too profane for it, the goddess, like his dogs, had been there before her. The goddess, draped in lavender and topped with a phoenix crown, was surrounded by four jade maidens and giant messenger bluebirds. Mali very slowly turned the knob, tipping the door open, dust wafted like snowfall within the dim, tomb-like room. Dalton was not there. The goddess and her maidens glared at her sternly, as if she had interrupted some invocation. It was only recently that Dalton had shared the goddess's name with Mali, Ji Wangbo, Queen Mother of the West. One day, he admitted that his mother's soul had been absorbed by the painting, and spoke to him through the canvas. She also learned that the apparition had once been impressed with her, and even suggested Dalton's marriage to her, but no more. His mother in the painting now saw Mali as a liar and a charlatan. That woman simply isn't devoted Dalton. He confessed that there was little he could do to change his mother's mind. All of this he had divulged unprovoked. Mali married Dalton, knowing he was so unsound of mind. But his condition had significantly worsened over the past five years. Paranoia, dementia... Monomania. She wasn't sure how to describe it. He had rooms with towers of newspapers and magazines and boxes and all sorts of ephemera. Flew into rages at the slightest mention of tidying those rooms. The house itself was a hodgepodge of things foreign and colonial and antebellum and pretty and gold and red and scintillating. It was ungainly and disgusting. Just like him. So, yeah, that's just a taste of uh, the, the book. And from there, yeah, we know that something clearly isn't right in the, the Chango estate. It all goes downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kevin, thank you so much for that reading. And thank you for joining us on the podcast. Hungry Ghosts is available. It's out now, either at your local independent bookshop or wherever you decide to get your books from. And it's available in the Mostly Bookstore and uh, on our website as well. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on Mostly Books Meets. Thank you so much for having me. And it's been a pleasure. Mostly Books Meets is presented and produced by the bookselling team at Mostly Books, an award-winning bookshop located in Abingdon, Oxfordshire. All of the titles mentioned in this episode are available through our shop or your preferred local independent. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our previous guests, which include some of the most exciting voices in the world of books. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Happy reading.